when I was around 19 or 20, I was a fan of the Powerpuff Girls, the, the cartoon series that was on Cartoon Network. And one night when I was watching, they had a music video that happened to be Buttercup, I'm a Supergirl. I had never seen an all-female punk band before women really rock out like that. More specifically, Japanese women, because, you know, there's so many stereotypes in the United States about Asian women. Seeing someone like that playing on television on something as cool as Cartoon Network was an inspiration. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandi Howell. On today's episode, we have the story of Shona Knife, a story of cultural exchange through the cassette tape, but also a story of an era in history, just before the stronghold of the looming internet drastically changed, among so many other things, the way we consume and discover music. It was a time when culture, as writer Karen Schomer said, was precious. You really had to fight for it. And so on this episode, a story of how the cassette, alongside fanzines and college radio, all worked to create an environment that made possible the seemingly improbable circumstance of an all-girl band from Osaka, Japan, eventually opening for Nirvana, one of the biggest musical acts of the 90s. And how these women have retained their status of cultural influence some 40 years after their band's origin. Here's their story. Sina is a punk rocker. Sina is a punk rocker. Sina is a punk rocker now. <laughs> I'm Naoko. I play the guitar. I'm Atsuko. I play the bass guitar. I'm Lisa. I play the drums. Shonen means boy in Japanese and uh, it's a very old brand name of a pencil knife and the word shonen has very cute feeling and the knife has a little dangerous feeling so when cute and dangerous combined together it's just like our band so I put that name. Originally, I liked the Beatles a lot when I was a child, and then uh, in the late 70s, a punk pop movement was happening, and I became a big fan of uh, Ramones or Buzz Cox. First, I listened to their music through the radio. And uh, there is a radio program in Osaka, and uh, they play the Ramones or Buzzcocks. Many uh, punk music. One new music life presents Aoyama Rock and Roll Radio. When I was 15 years old, I got an, an acoustic guitar. The strings were so hard and I hurt my fingers, so I couldn't play the, the acoustic guitar. But after I get an uh, electric guitar a uh, few years after that, I rather like a pop melody line punk rock. And uh, inspired by such kind of bands, I wanted to start my own band. 
Chen and I, they formed in 1981. Naoko decided to form a rock and roll band after she heard some Ramones on the radio. My name is Brooke Mkorkolokazaki. I am an assistant professor of music at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and I am the author of Shonen Knife's Happy Hour, Food, Gender, and Rock and Roll. Mitie and Nalko are currently working as secretaries and workers in a machinery company in Osaka, and Atsuko was actually still a high school student. She wound up graduating and going to fashion school in they all worked day jobs until 1994 when they went on the big North American tour. And it was then that they decided to quit and become full-time musicians. So they were slugging it out for a good 13 years before becoming full-time musicians. And they've been full-time musicians since then, which is <laughs> just, just amazing. The Japanese Minatano Shiku means uh, let's have fun together. We recorded it at our friend's house and everybody was very uh, DIY. <laughs> One day, a guy who is owning his record label called Zero Records came to our show and he offered that he would like to release a record. For uh, that cassette album, uh, we copied 40 sets and we put our kiss mark on each jacket. First, I got postal mail from Calvin Johnson from K Records and then we exchanged letters because there was no internet at that time and of course there was no facsimile too. <laughs> so um, Calvin Johnson, he said he wanted to release our album from his label, K Records. So uh, we sent our master tape to him by postal mail and then uh, he made our, a cassette tape. The cassette came along and it was something where you could just make 30 or 50 cassettes and it didn't cost a thousand dollars. Cassettes had existed for a long time, but it was only around that time, 1980-81, that they became viable in terms of their portability and their sound quality. So I took this concept into the world of underground music. We created our releases using that technology. Another big influence was Folkways Records. The idea there seemed to be documenting things and then making it available to whoever was interested in finding out about it or appreciating it. And I think that K, we took on that a lot too. Find people in our town or Olympia or around that seemed worth documenting, trying to present the same thing to the world. Teen? Well, fair enough. That's Shonen Knife, the most lovable punk band on the planet, or for that matter, off it. The Japanese group spent December on a tear through the Midwest, opening for Nirvana. Its members have been converted to the way of the knife on a European tour the two bands had shared two years earlier. About five years ago, mm -hmm. um, when you guys put out the Burning Farm EP on the cassette, yeah. well, Calvin, my friend Calvin yeah. from Olympia, he 
he sold me that tape. I bought that tape from him because he works at K Records, and I heard it and I fell in love with it. And it's taken a long time for people to hear you guys. We're glad that we finally got to go on tour with you. Now, now a lot of people, in, at least in England, love you guys. In the 80s, uh, Shonen Knife was only playing in Japan. And our first outside of Japan show is 1989. We just had only one show in Los Angeles. And、uh, in 1991, we played at four cities in the United States, including Los Angeles, where Kat Cohen came to see us. When I finally got to see them live, I was transformed into a hysterical nine year old girl at Beatles concert. Wow! <laughs> Very honored about that, and、uh, I thank to him, Card, very much. Card came to see our show, and that time he didn't say anything to us. But later, he offered to open as a support band for Nirvana. We started touring from 1991. Members of Nirvana made a contact to our management at that time, and they want us to open up for their shows. So, um. Everything changed. They went into their first song, and everyone just seemed sort of baffled. And next couple songs, people, you know, they won over the audience by the end of the night. But I remember every show, they won every the show,、audience. people were just two songs, like、so. almost in tears. I was an emotional sap the whole time. I cried every night. You couldn't help it. I didn't know about Nirvana at that time, so、uh, I felt a little bit scary. To tour with them because they looked very wild. But after we met them,、uh, they are very polite, good gentlemen, and、uh, the touring was very nice because they were just、uh, breaking and、uh, every show is packed. So、um, yeah, it was very good experience. It was like coming back to me the Nirvana connection and the Sonic Youth connection, and kind of reminding me how at that time, like basically anything Sonic Youth told you to like, you just loved. They had this incredible influence culturally, musically, fashion, you know, just everything. So that was one part of it that I'd kind of forgotten about, just how Sonic Youth had a lot to do with them breaking in the States. My name's Karen Schomer. I'm a former music writer. From 1989 until 1994, I was a regular contributor to the New York Times, writing features and criticism. And then from 94 until 99, I was the pop music critic at Newsweek. The thing that was central to me at that time was that there was sort of like big commercial music. There was MTV, which 
had like, you know, like hair metal and Madonna. TV top 20 video countdown. There was just like huge pop music. And, and then there was this resistance to it, which was in clubs and fanzines and college radio. We were living in this kind of underground dropouts of mainstream music. So the seriousness to me was less in the music than it was in the kind of purity you were supposed to have of sort of the ethics of just being against commercialism. And as more and more bands were getting signed to major labels, it was this big thing about maintaining your purity, not selling out. So in that sense, Shonen Knife was kind of a part of that because they were so defiantly against anything polished. The reaction, especially in like hipster places like CBTVs and stuff, might might come off as thinking Shonen Knife is instrumentally incompetent or unpolished. But I actually think that that lack of virtuosity is an asset. It goes back to ideas of gender and gender stereotypes too. Masculinity in rock and roll has typically been conveyed by virtuosity, especially on the guitar. When you have scholars like Robert Walser and Susan McClary who have both talked about, you know, guitar as a phallic symbol and abilities on guitar as these abilities of masculine expression and dominance. Think about like, you know, Van Halen or somebody like that. Just you know, shredding on guitar and, and, you know, being elevated in some way because of this technical virtuosity. So the opposite, this embrace of the sort of DIY, teach yourself how to play kind of aesthetic that Stone Knife has is something that I think makes their music more accessible to non-musicians in a way. People see them and hear them and are like, this is something that I could do and provides that kind of inspiration. And especially to young women, it's an example of like, this isn't something you have to spend 20 years of private lessons doing. This is something you could go home, buy a guitar and teach yourself three chords and be able to play. And that's okay too. And that's just as valid as, you know, an intense shredding solo. And I think that's part of why Kurt Cobain was so entranced by them. They didn't perform virtuosically, but they didn't ever feel bad or apologize for it. They're genuinely playing music that makes them happy and that makes listeners happy. And I think that's one of the main charms of Shonen Knife. When I was around 19 or 20, I was a fan of the Powerpuff Girls, the, the cartoon series that was on Cartoon Network. And one night when I was watching, they had a music video that happened to be Buttercup, I'm a Supergirl, that Shonen Knife performs. The author of Powerpuff Girls invited us to join the tribute album. Uh, Buttercup is very uh, strong, positive character, so uh, 
I wrote that song to make a very powerful song. I had never seen an all-female punk band before. I knew about the Go-Go's and the Bangles, but I'd never seen women really rock out like that. Even more specifically, Japanese women, because you know there's so many stereotypes in the United States about Asian women. And so it was really inspiring and awesome to see those women playing punk rock and um, representing sort of musical versions of the Powerpuff Girls. Seeing someone like that playing on television on something as cool as Cartoon Network was, was an inspiration. There were all these interesting women making music taking the same sources that male bands were doing, but just trying to say, I hear this a little differently. I feel it a little differently. My goals with it are a little bit different. I'm not trying to be polished. I'm really trying to feel this music in the way that's right for me. The Riot Girl movement, which was coming out around the same time Shonen Knife was hitting it big globally in the 90s. And they are a strong contrast to some of those other female punk style bands like The Breeders or The Slits or something like that. And that Shonen Knife embraces their femininity. The idea of cute or kawaii culture in Japan is a little different from how it's perceived in Europe and the United States. By embracing this femininity or this cuteness, Shonen Knife is actually reclaiming girliness as a tool of feminist power, though they're not nearly as blatant as some of the other UK groups or American groups. They're not like, we're feminists, we're here to kick boy ass. Shonen Knife instead is about embracing what it means to be a woman and taking pleasure in that, which can include wearing cute dresses on stage, um, singing about ice cream or uh, cream puffs uh, or, you know, puppy dogs. When I think back on how I felt about Shonen Knife at the time, like they were kind of a joke at the same time. And I think that goes in with the kind of exotic quality of it. I think that was the part of it that I was a little uncomfortable with, that we were sort of laughing at them, even as we were kind of underneath it all, kind of laughing at ourselves, because fandom was also such a huge part of that scene. You heard that kind of fandom in Shonen Knife. You could imagine them being over there in Japan and being like, we love the Ramones, you know, and being like, we're going to play the Ramones. And, and it came out sounding like totally warped, but at the same time, it had that sort of genuine exuberance and sincerity that I think we all really related to. We were very happy to play at CBGB. CBGBs at that time, there could be like six bands like every night of the week. The club was very long and uh, sometimes it's a little hard to watch band. <laughs> the stage, like to get downstairs to the bathroom, there was a space that felt like it was about two inches wide. And then the area in front of the stage seemed like it was about four feet wide. It was a really awkward sized room. 
New York was still very grimy. It still had this hangover from the 70s, and I miss that a lot. Glad I got to be there. I was happy to play such a historical place. And when I was a high school student, I listened to Blondie or Talking Heads like uh, many bands played at CBGB. So when I got a CBGB t-shirt, I was so happy and I was wearing it every day. By then, you know, CBGB's like real kind of glory days as influencing music with television and Blondie and all that stuff. You know, that was kind of long over, but it was still a place that a lot of people played. And it still had all of that, you know, it had the disgusting bathroom and it had the terrible layout and it had the pistachio gumball machines that you would put a quarter in and you would get these like pink pistachios that left pink stuff all over your hand. At that point, you felt a little bit like you were entering a shell of something that had been really, really important, but it was still there. You still got to partake of it. People like Joey Ramone would be sitting in the back. It still had a lot of that like rank glamour to it. Monkey Ramon uh, came to see us when we play in New York in 90s and he played the drums uh, for us and we played uh, some Ramon songs on stage. And also, we toured with uh, CJ Ramon in the United States a few years ago. The first time I saw Shonen Knife was in Philly. It was when they were doing the tour with CJ Ramon. So that was a very different experience from some of the other shows I've seen. The show was intense. A lot more hardcore punks were at that show. So there was a lot of moshing. And it's not something you really expected a Shonen Knife show. Banana chips. People mashing the banana chips is not something I ever thought I would see in, in this lifetime, but I've seen it. So that's kind of cool. In the 80s, Hello Kitty was first making its way to North America, but it was really the early 90s when it explodes. You start to have more and more Sanrio goods that them all. Then, of course, Nintendo and Sega Genesis were the other sort of main introductions to Japanese popular culture, I think, for people of a certain generation. But Shonen Knife, musically, is likely one of many people's first exposures to Japanese music culture. Aside from, say, Yoko Ono, Shonen Knife, in terms of Japanese bands, was really one of the first to become part of this phenomenon that eventually was known as Japan's gross national cool. It's this idea that after Japan's economic bubble burst at the beginning of the 1990s, they went through an economic slump. But in order to sort of revive Japan's economy and prominence in the globe, the government started promoting, among other things, the exportation of popular culture abroad. And this is when you start having things like Toonami on Cartoon Network with Dragon Ball Z and later Naruto or Inuyasha, as well as the explosion with Pokemon at the time.
So you have around the 90s, early 2000s, you have this explosion of Japanese popular culture around the world. And Shonen Knife, I think, can be seen as part of this gross national cool project as a way of sort of upping Japan's image in the global economy and the global world in a way and introducing young people especially to Japanese culture. And it's become a real core part of Japan's economy. And I think Shonen Knife has contributed to that. Like they certainly have upped I think Japan's prominence, musically speaking, in the world. Hi, I'm Naoko from Shonen Nine. We can't wait to come to visit the United States once again uh, for the Shonen Nine 2017 Ramen Adventure, traveling all around the United States to support our latest release adventure. So uh, please join us and let's rock together. Certainly in Japan, I think Shonen Knife has had a huge impact on other female musicians, especially female musicians that were coming of age in the 90s and early 2000s. Otoboke Viver, Afri Rampo, there's so many more bands with women performers or all female groups in Japan now. And I think that's thanks in part to Shonen Knife really paving the way for these musicians. And I think that that translates both to bands in the States as well. Certainly for me personally, they were an inspiration. And I imagine they've inspired many other young women all around the world. You know, it's kind of nostalgia. Shonen Knife, in a way, is going to be nostalgia for people like myself. And then probably for plenty of other people, they still are that act of Japanese interpreting American culture. When Shonen Knife gives us punk rock back, they're doing it in a very knowing, cunning way of knowing that they're changing it and knowing that we're going to hear it as both what it originally was and what they're adding into it. So I think that's as viable now as it ever was. I'm keeping myself fresh and that's why I can continue the band. It's getting more easy to exchange culture through internet and it's very easy to express music or art. Uh, but in our case, we don't imitate other people. We are very independent and very unique. I think that's why many people uh, listen to Shonen Knife. Special thanks in this episode to Shonen Knife, Naiko, Atsuko, and Risa, and to Karen Shomer and Brooke McCorkle Okazaki for their great insight. Brooke's book, Shonen Knife's Happy Hour, Food, Ginger, and Rock and Roll, comes out this February of 2021. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please consider sharing with a friend and subscribing wherever you find your podcasts. Till then, you've been listening to The Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandi Howell. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>